All right, Mike. So we have another tournament under our belts. Warzone we, Houston. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's we now do. officially in our rearview mirrors. Thank God, because <laughs> we can probably talk about it was not a great result for either of us. Although, I, I got to tip my hat to you, sir. Being the one man with the new Yanari stats now officially in the books. Oh, yes. You, you put on a pretty good show. I did. And uh, <laughs> it was actually, I got that last game that I played on Saturday um, inspired me to do that thing that I try not to indulge in, which is to, hmm, that didn't feel like a played right. Let me go back and figure out what was wrong. And then spent six hours when I got home after getting home fairly late, combing through rules like, damn it, I should have done this. Which, and then uh, what happened the next day? Well, you see, I stayed up until three, uh, combing through rules, and then the uh, turn, the next round started at eight. And so I kind of sort of, you know, s- slept through my alarm clock. I actually found my uh, cell phone on the other side of the room um, than where I remember leaving it. Uh, so clearly we had a disagreement over what time to wake up that morning. And so, yeah, I uh, kind of missed out on the second day as a result. Over. I did wake up well-rested. <laughs> yes, I would imagine you'd be very well-rested after a you know, good long sleep-in like that. I would have I actually loved that myself. The, the 8 a.m. round start for day two was... I mean, the guys... First of all, the guys, uh, John... Um, John Owens uh, did a fantastic job, um, you know, kind of getting running the team that ran everything. Um, I, for the life of me, I'm going to miss everybody's name that's in there. And, you know, I apologize, but um, the guys did actually a really good job with the tournament. Um, You know, I'm sure they, they, they actually were really good about seeking feedback and trying to find out what worked good and what, what didn't. Um, And I think, uh, I think next year we've got a lot to look forward to for it. Um, you know, and I'm sure there's some things that even they were, they were probably thinking, yeah, those, they missed some expectations on that, but you know, all in all, uh, you know, there is no perfect tournament. There's just like, there is no perfect 40 K game, you know, everything can yeah. be better. So, you know, it was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, everybody was there. I thought it was one of the mildest events, um, out of all the Texas tournaments that we've had this year there in some events, there's been some. You know, we've had our typical drama, our controversy, um, you know, terrain is good, terrain is bad. I thought the great thing was um, this was one of the tournaments where from just having a good time, probably had the best time out of all yeah. so far. I think everybody's mood was pretty, you know, relaxed. You know, everybody just seemed to be, you know, knowing that they were just going to have a good time in their games. Um, mm-hmm. So that was, that was kind of, to me, that was probably the best takeaway out of the whole thing. Yeah, there are a couple of like minor hiccups, like the uh, the uh, table sheets, like the, the score sheets and the admissions kept on migrating when they were not supposed to. Um, but uh, which yeah. I think in the future maybe just giving everyone a sheet, even though it doubles the cost of printing, might. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that being, you know something that they could do, or it's got to be something at tournaments where they can maybe figure out a way to. Uh, make it so that you don't have to have you don't have to remember your packet or something like that or just make it yeah. like a you know maybe like a hanger or a shelf or i don't know like something at the table that makes it so you can just 
leave the rule book there or you remember to leave it there or something like that. So um, that, yeah. I think that would, that would greatly improve it. But in any case, um, so we'll, Mike, we'll save the best for last there uh, for you. Um, I did not do well at all. Um, I went one or two and three for the event. Um, my, my matchups were pretty tough. Uh, for the most part, I had, I got dealt some tough situations. Uh, first game was against, uh, a local guy from Houston named Cody. Uh, it was an orcs matchup. Um, it basically, I won on points at the end rather than, you know, actually having stuff living. He, he had way more on the board. I just kind of outscored him round by round. Um, that game is actually up on the, if you go and search for the FMP Wargamers YouTube channel, they have that round one top table, uh, video on YouTube. So you can watch the match. Um, there was one thing I did want to bring up that happened in there, um, that, that I, I think happens from time to time where you are in a tough situation. Um, you're thinking in your head, like, yeah, there's this clause in the rules where I can do this or this. And in hindsight, I've been thinking about this and I felt really bad about it. Um, and so what, what it all comes down to is that there is actually within the clock rules and we were playing with the chess clock. Um, there is a clause in there that allows you to just basically say, you can, you can decide to just not make saves. You just not roll saves and yes. you don't actually walk <laughs> over onto your time. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the rule I was remembering. However, in my trying to man my brain trying to manage everything that was going on, the way my brain remembered it was you can choose to just not roll morale. And so, <laughs> so as a result, uh, you know, we ended up having a, a judge come over and clarify that. And indeed, I could not do what I was thinking I could do. Um, and I'm sure on the stream, it doesn't sound good. It sounds like, you know, yeah, I'm just going to not, not roll morale. Um, so just for clarity, that's, that's what I was thinking. And to further clarify, there is really no advantage to doing that either. Um, this is shame on me too, because you should know the rules yourself. If you're going to do something, you should know it. Um, you shouldn't be looking for advantages out of stuff like that either. So, you know, I definitely think that was not my intent, but it was definitely one of those things where you're thinking about, okay, this is going to come down to a point or two here. How do I, you know, what do I do? What are my options? What can I do? What can I do? Um, and that's where sometimes you do get into something where it's, you know, not shady, but on the border of, you know, <clears throat> not should I do this or shouldn't, shouldn't I do this? It's more of a can or can't. And you, because you are thinking you can do it, you're leaning towards, I can do this. Anyways, um, that was just not something that I ought to do again, I think, in the future. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but in any case, you'll live and learn. Um, we had kind of a, a contested finish to that match, but thankfully Cody was a good sport about it. Um, we ended up calling it a tie, as you find at the end of the stream, and then what happened um, uh, was over the break, we were able to look at um, the video replay that was on there. And this would have only happened, you know, since we had the stream, this only happened this way. And um, I had kind of given him a bonus point that was in there uh, for a turn. And it turned out that I had a clear shot on the videos that 
that point was not actually scored at all. So we went back and adjusted that and that ended up with a one point win for me. So in any case, um, you know, Cody, it was a great game. I mean, you, you come down to one point, that's a really good game. It was a great match. Um, round two, I faced Will Ivy, who ended up top table at the end of the tournament. Uh, he, he basically was playing parking lot guard for the most part. Um, though he had aspects he could get around a little bit, but you know, I don't think it was much more than, you know, move, move, move with his, uh, or orders with his, uh, guardsmen. Um, yeah. but, uh, you know, for the most part, it was parking lot guard. Um, and again, it's, it's Cadian relic Acadia. You know, you just, we, we had a good laugh before the match. Uh, Will was a great opponent. Uh, we had a great, great game aside from the fact that we both knew at the beginning, like I'm about to get my poo pushed in. So that's basically, <laughs> that's basically how that game went. Um, he went first. Um, you know, we laughed because it was, um, hey, there is a chance here. There's a window where if I can go first and I can strike him hard enough early on, I could put him on his back foot. And that's actually how I won my match against Cadians at um, San Antonio. But that's just not how the dice fell. And that's just how it goes at that point. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of places for me to hide. And I pretty much spent most of the game hiding from him. But you know, you can only do so much when your opponent's re-rolling hits, re-rolling wounds, you know, just, yeah. I'm just going to re-roll everything <laughs> against you because screw chaos. So yeah, pretty much the only way you can possibly pull a one in this situation is just play hyper aggressive and hope the dice pull you through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you're always going to have those matchups where you just, there is no, there is no <clears throat> solution for you to win other than maybe getting a little lucky. Yeah. But in those situations, you just you do what you can. You try and score as much as you can coming out of it, and kind of soften the blow as best as you can. And yeah, you know that's that's really all I had left to do there. So, um, but congrats to Will because he played a great tournament. Ended up top table against Nick, and uh, I think Nick talked a little bit about you know how his list was pretty good at actually dealing with that and how how that game went. But uh, it was a great game with Will, and um, yeah, and t- round three was. Um, I played, uh, you'll love this, Mike. I faced 59 Immortals. That's a lot of Immortals. And damn near all of them were gone by the end of the game. But I lost this game pretty bad. I probably lost by about 8 or eight or 10 points. Um, but I can tell you what was key in this game and, and why this ended up as a loss. Um, there's this bastard Emotech. <laughs> and... He, the, the way he would, he basically, you can envision the board. We drew hammer and anvil or pointy, pointy hammer and anvil, I think. Yeah. And he's basically set up with his immortals spread out across the board and he's marching across the board towards me. Um, he had taken recon and that was pretty smart because he had the three doom sites and he could fly up the board and, and, you know, he did his mortal wound bomb to me, which I knew was coming. So what I did was I spread my army out so that, you know, I minimized how many units could get hit at once. And I knew a couple Mm -hmm. of them would probably get hit, but there's only so much you can do. Um, But I thought I got off pretty easy. Uh, I think only one unit ended up taking, I think it was like three or four mortal wounds. It was like a dreadnought or something like that. So it was like the perfect unit to actually take some of that. Um, So what happened was it got into this battle with um, my butcher cannons and my auto cannons and they're actually really good against the Immortals. They were a good stat to just kind of pump out enough good shots. 
uh, to make saves just hard enough. And um, for anything that did have a feel no pain, which I don't think any of his stuff did. No. Uh, yeah, that comes up in the next game, but for stuff that <clears throat> pains, it's really, really effective because you got to make that twice for each model. Mm-hmm. Uh, in any case, my chain cannons came in. Um, I basically ended up dropping my drop pod in on a tower in the middle of the board. And then my chain cannons and my auto cannons all got out. And the way it ended up with him marching up the table, he had some of his characters exposed and I was able to get in and kill with, um, I, I I want to say it was my demon prince round one went in and killed one of his cryptex and then kind of was able to shuffle around and kind of hide a little bit so he could survive um, through glamour and, and weaver of fates on him uh, Cause I knew he was going to be targeted. And so what happened was that next turn came up and I realized, okay, now I'm going to go after Emotech. I'm going to shut him down and everything worked to plan went into the psychic phase Threw, threw mortal wounds on him, got, got him down to, I don't know, like three three wounds, two wounds, something like that. Yeah. And so I'm figuring, okay, well, uh, you know, I can shoot at him. I dumped pretty much all of my auto cannons, all of my chain cannons, uh, all of my butcher cannons on my contemptors that could shoot him. I think only one of them couldn't because he was closer to some other stuff. But I, I mean, I set this up great. I had perfect line of sight and I've dumped all of this into that a whole squad of Havocs, whole squad of chain cannons, whole squ- uh, two whole butcher cannons into it. He did not take a single wound. And then I threw my demon prince into him uh, in combat. And I just figured, well, you know, we, we got to send him in there. He was still buffed up after my psychic phase. We got to kill him. We've committed to killing him. Um, and if I could, then all of the stuff that was around him, like his immortals and stuff, they would not be getting up. I think he helps them get up on five, fours rather than fives or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I think Emotech does that. Um, but in any, like a Cryptech, but in any case, I went after Emotech, dumped all of that in there and it failed. And when you have a round like that, where you literally can negate everything that your whole army just basically tried to do, um, that's really bad, really, really bad. And I felt the effects of that the next turn. So, um, essentially what happened was, um, uh, he ended up, uh, basically I think tabling me turn, I think we, we talked out the end of it, like turn five and six and he tabled me. So that was kind of a rough ending to, to day two. Um, but it was a good game. Um, and then, you know, overnight, I, you know, I'm sitting there at one and two on day one and that same thing happened to me in Dallas. And the next day I went two and oh, um, unfortunately I think I had a better attitude at Dallas. Whereas here I basically decided to go out and drink and have a good time and, you know, let's just kind of make this day go away kind of feeling. (laughs) Yeah. And I felt that every little bit the next day. Um, but had a great time that night. Um, day two, you know, unfortunately my, my two opponents, uh, my Necron and my orc opponents day one were both, uh, Houston players. They were from Houston. Um, and then, uh, day two, I draw another Houston player, uh, for my first matchups. And I was looking across the board and I noticed that just kind of on a side note here, a lot of the Houston guys, just their, the way the, the pairings fell this, this event, it was really weird. All the Houston guys ended up playing each other. I think Colin McDade actually ended up playing Houston people for five straight rounds. Um, and that's <laughs> for as many people that were there, I think it was 82. Mm-hmm. That was 
that's pretty, I mean, not to get one single person from out of town is kind of crazy, but in any case, moving on. Um, I faced a dark Eldar list uh, for my first game day two, which was basically kind of my main thing that this army could just absolutely hammer. And it did. Um, he had some venoms and ravagers and raiders and everything just started popping left and right. Um, the, the auto cannons are legitimately perfect for going up against those armies. Yeah. Um, because of the two damage, um, I have enough good shooting that I don't care about the, the penalties to hit on things like venoms. Um, and the, the, you know, I would put like five or six wounds onto something and a round of shooting from something and, you know, three get through, well, you know, there goes your venom. And, uh, so that's kind of how that game ended up going. I just kind of end up popping stuff a lot quicker than, uh, he could, he could get to me or he could, he could pop my stuff. So, um, and then, uh, game five was fantastic. Uh, I drew the legendary Mr. John Cook, uh, for that match. And he was running his space wolves. He had three squads of Wolfen. Uh, he had, I think a Phobos Lieutenant, uh, and he had a, what's the, um, what's that wolf, uh, flyer, the space wolf flyer that transports, uh, storm wolf, storm wolf. Yeah. So he had that thing, a Ziffin and a storm and a storm talent, I think. And mm. I think he had some captains and some other dudes on bikes. So it wasn't a very model heavy, uh, uh, list, but we drew search and destroy and he went first and there was, that was about the end of that game. Uh, the, the Wolfen were on my, were basically on my Zangors turn one. Uh, so a whole squad of my Zangors were gone turn one, excuse me, a whole squad of my Zangors were gone turn one. Uh, and then it was pretty much game over for the rest of the army at that point. So once, once he got into melee, I had nothing going my way at that point. I couldn't even get a little bit of luck on the dice either. Yeah. So that game, that game was probably my like my worst loss on the whole thing, but it was really, you know, just a really bad situation uh, and compounded by a little bit of bad luck. So Mike, did you have better games than I did? Better, you know what? Better, let me say better results than I did. I, I did have better. I would say better results. Definitely. Maybe even better games. Okay. So uh, my first game, uh, I wound up playing against with, playing with that same Inari list I've been trying out the last couple months um, against a Dark Eldar player, which I thought I was in for a bad time because all of his guys are mounted up in transports. He has three like three raiders full of warriors, three ravagers with the typical um, archon with the reroll hits, reroll wounds of one, and a tantalus with, uh, I don't know if you're playing against one of those, but effectively they have strength, like 12 shot, eight strength, eight disintegrators. And uh, a couple of other just sort of weird things that I think he was planning to use to like catch units that were sort of out by themselves or maybe take objectives. I'm not really sure what the idea was there. And so I managed to go first and I do my usual slingshot Harlequin jet bikes to the far corners of the table um, and put one set of bikes literally within like two inches of his ravagers uh, with the entire purpose of, I want him to kill them because 
then the Incarn gets across the table scot free. Oh, he also had um, two of the Void Raven bombers, which uh, those, again, I was expecting bad things from those. And so his first turn comes around, he kills the bikes at, like, at the ass end of his shooting phase. So the Incarn pops up, and there's just. In the perfect spot, there's nothing he can do. The Void Ravens just sort of don't do much. And then turn two, the Incarn proceeds to just kill everything. Uh, uses in the psychic phase, wipes out one Ravager, assaults the other two Ravagers, kills them. A squad of witches assaults his, his Warlord Archon and just... Effectively, everything that could possibly go right for me went right. Um, like, I had Dire Avengers shoot a Void Raven bomber out of the air with their Shuriken Catapults. How does that even happen? That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was just like, okay, well, that, that, that was uh, unexpected. Uh, he had a bad time. Um, but, uh, okay, so we went on to round two. And so initially round two, I was supposed to play Tyranids and I was just like, ah, crap, this is going to suck. He's a effectively a beefier close combat army and just sort of would be a, actually a pretty bad matchup for me. And then your game gets recalculated and I get the, the entire bottom rung <laughs> of this tournament gets flipped on its head. And now I'm playing against, uh, well, mixed chaos. So effectively, just uh, <laughs> It was uh, Colin Coons uh, here from here in Houston, so, and uh, so he had like a Baden with a bunch of cultists and two sorcerer lords and Terminator armor, mm-hmm. and then a detachment of a big battalion of uh, uh, red corsairs, and. He never, I don't think, played versus the new Inari. I think he might have heard some, like a couple of anecdotes about the games that I'd played. And so he marches this big 20 man block of Chaos Space Marines up the middle to claim the middle objective. He moves these groups of uh, t- like 15 cultists up on either side. And I'm just like, oh, look, toys. And proceed <laughs> to just roll over this, like, all of this stuff in the middle with this ludicrous number of close combat attacks. It was not like literally I had units that charged in that never got to swing because my witches killed those chaos base Marines so bad. And then pile in and consolidate into all of his characters in the back. That's so but, funny. That it, it's so reminiscent when you play that first game against the new Yanari and you're just kind of going, I'm not sure what's out. Oh God. Oh God. Yeah. What is this? Stop it. And so then it's like, okay, I've got the Incarn who's sort of like out in the open and he charges Abaddon into the Incarn, but he kills a unit of Inari of a, like my witches off on the side. And so the Incarn just poop, pops over out of combat with like Abaddon. It's just like, well, now what? So he, like, he charges in, he fails to kill the, the Harlequin jet bikes. And then I kill him. And it's really, at that point, the game was over. It was just how many characters can I pop to get all my extra points? Yeah. And so I won a massive victory there. There's just like, 
again, really, if I think if he'd pulled, like, played a little more defensively and played a shooting game as opposed to trying to, you know, assault me, he would have been in a much better spot. But because I remembered having literally just played a very similar army, that, okay, if I fail to kill any one of these units at a time, he's just going to pull the remainder and bring them all back on the table edge. Yeah. And so I was very careful to make sure that if I did damage to any of his red corsairs, that I kill all of them and leave no survivors. Yeah. But um, the third game is probably the single most technically demanding game I've played in years. Okay. Um, versus Colin McDade playing okay. his Death Watch with Blood Angels Smash Captains. I won't and, say Blood Angels allies. He really just he, he brought enough Blood Angels for the Smash Captains, and it, so he's practically just he's playing regular Space Marines, right? I mean, for the most part, right? No, no, Except I would Blood not. Angels, or do you not I, count? Not it? even remotely, no. no. Uh, so the thing about that aren't that list is that pretty much everything that you're going to be able to actually reach has a three up invuln save, and Stormbolter. and so yeah, really, what his list. Uh, relies on is that he deep strikes in these units of vets with the uh, special ammo storm bolters and will just blat things off the table. Yep. Um, which the vet squads are a very complicated unit because they're like regular infantry guys with a terminator and a bike and a jump guy. And so a lot of what I was actually researching after the game is how their special rules interact with my special rules uh-huh. And it turns out that there are a, a couple of things that if we had stopped the game and looked it up, which granted at one point he did offer like, oh, look, we'll just pull it up. But at that point we were running low on time. And so I just wanted to get the game finished, which we didn't finish anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so ultimately it was a very close game, but because of, I'm a very assaulty army and his army is very finely tuned to prevent assaults from working due to the fra- just number of frag cannons in his larger units. Um, I ran out of bodies before he did. And um, ultimately I, I lost by two points, I think. And, um, and he went on to take second place, I think overall at the uh, tournament. Um, good for him. And he went, I think five and O total. But yep. uh, yeah, it was a it was a great result for him, um, and I think we were we were pretty impressed just at how close your uh, your two your your match was um, that you were able to, you know, Collins actually you know great player, and you were yeah. uh, taking them taking them basically to the limit there. So that was pretty yeah, good. yeah. The really I, I think that if going back, if I had done certain things differently, it could have been I could have actually probably pulled a win. But um, obviously, hindsight is fifty is twenty twenty there, and so uh, right, right. And I'm sure he probably sees some things that he could do differently. Oh yeah, you know, after playing Yunari a little bit more. So. Yeah, but um, then of course so, there was the oversleeping debacle, and uh, yeah, did not get my other two games. So, who was your MVP, Mike? For this tournament, the Incarn. Yeah. Um, which actually there was one moment that I was sort of, I had to sort of laugh. Um, some people have started referring to that list I was bringing as the incarn list. And the thing is, I can't really disagree. 
because really the like I, I've have devoted a good number of points into facilitating the end car and getting across the table so he can work to best effect. Mm-hmm. And really, without the end car, the entire list just doesn't work. Yeah, it's the bikes. The bikes come at you, and once mm-hmm. they're—I mean, basically—once you get them into combat, more or less, you're you're pretty much going okay. That's set because yeah. if they die, here comes the incarn. Mm-hmm. And I guess could you counter that at all by, you know, placing your bodies around the jet bikes in a way so that there was no room to place the incarn? No. So effectively, the incarn's rules specify that you put them as close as possible to the. Uh, last position of the unit and so for instance um one thing sneaky thing you can do is if you want to have fine control over where you're putting it effectively make sure you pull your models in the right order that way you can put them exactly where you want smart yeah and the incarn also flies which people often forget about so screening against them is actually fairly difficult unless you have multiple layers of screens Mm -hmm. and once she's in your face it's uh you know that's takes the pressure off the rest of your army basically. Yeah. So, well, that was, it was a good event overall. Um, glad we were both able to, uh, at least attend day one and, you know, make a showing day two. Uh, yeah. The final for the Texas circuit is coming up in Austin, uh, middle of August. Uh, that'll be war games con. Um, I've heard some rumblings of some out of state folks probably showing up. Um, and if you're, you know, uh, planning to attend the event, I would recommend uh, getting your tickets as soon as possible because one of the common themes we've had at a bunch of the Texas events this year is they have been selling out, uh, even the ones that have expanded. So it has been um, a great turnout down here for the events, and hopefully we see that continue at uh, War Games Con. I think we'll probably see a return of Matthew Ali and his Thousand Sons at War Games Con. Um, he's kind of 2-0 and o right now. He was not in attendance at Warzone uh, for exactly the reason I just talked about. Um, he was not able to get a, uh, a ticket, unfortunately. So That is unfortunate. It happens. So yeah. we'll see what happens coming up in August. I think the, the book is still open on what I'm taking. Are you thinking about taking the Yanari up there for a run? Um, I'm actually not sure if I'm going to Austin this year. Depends okay. on sort of how work works out. Yep. Yep. Life gets in the way. I see. But that happens. Yeah. So moving on to some other stuff, if we're going to kind of stay on our topic of tournaments on this episode a little bit, uh, I have got some updated stats for us, Mike. So 40kstats.com has, uh, we've been talking about this on some previous podcasts. Uh, They've been doing a fantastic job tracking how armies do at the kind of the macro level. Um, And I have been uh, personally tracking how the army does at a micro level, a thousand suns. Um, So one of the things we're continuing to see, unfortunately, uh, in the numbers, uh, or maybe fortunately, uh, is a drop in T-WIP, which is tournaments in winning position, or essentially if you go 4-0 at a tournament, you're in a position to win the tournament. Uh, so it's a good measure of an army doing very well. Uh, unfortunately, we have dropped to the point of being less less uh, competitive than uh, Tyranids. Uh, we are uh, about on par with Necrons, and it looks like 
We're still ahead of sisters. We're still ahead of uh, regular, just generic space Marines. Uh, we're nobody's taking pure blood angels. So there's not really that much. <laughs> so um, it looks like chaos space Marines is about tied right now, but I have a feeling that chaos space Marines has actually been going up a little bit. I just don't have the data on the trends. Mm-hmm. I think this is one of the things I'd really like to see the the 40k stats guys do is maybe just take the data that they've been getting um, and just kind of look at the snapshots or or attach the dates for the data that they have behind the scenes so that you can actually draw a trend for the armies to see okay well they're at they're at a snapshot right now it doesn't tell me necessarily whether it's improving or not improving so yeah. but I don't think there's any any surprise there you know, with the, with the army dropping off. Um, and I actually, I have a theory here. Um, one that I think may ultimately, uh, lead to thousand sons getting some help. Uh, but let's switch over to the micro level here. Um, and let's talk about what we're seeing from a tournament stats for thousand sons. Um, our, our overall tournament placing, uh, when we talked about this back in May, uh, it was just getting to the point where Thousand Sons were crossing over from being um, in the top 50% of, uh, of tournament placings. Uh, we are now in the bottom 50%. Uh, and we are clearly in the bottom. Uh, mm-hmm. if, the, if the trend continues on the path that it's going, uh, Thousand Sons will be probably in the bottom 75% by probably the end of the year it looks like maybe close to that so we're we're not trending good folks um the tournament win percentage uh is also down and that obviously goes in hand in hand with our placings going down uh the we had a little we actually had a um a little bit of a good spike there um in uh, i would want to say it's towards the middle of uh, probably around the June timeframe. And that would coincide with Alamo and Matthew Ali winning. Um, I think that, and there's another guy out there, Brandon Smith, who I've seen, I think he's playing in some of the West coast events. Uh, so shout out to Brandon, if he's listening, uh, he's actually done pretty well out there. I think at one of the events, he was 10th out of uh, about 70 or 80 folks at one of those events. And that's, that's pretty dang good with a uh, thousand sons. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that helped bump it up a little bit, but one of the things you can see in the trends is that's kind of, it looks like it's an aberration and it's kind of trending back down. So, uh, and then points per tournament continues to drop. Um, and, and I think that's something that kind of um, shows the pressure that the army is under at the moment to try and compete and win. Uh, for most folks that are, uh, that are doing very well at tournaments, I think they are scoring somewhere around the 140 points per tournament. So if you go to a typical GT and you have five rounds, uh, thousand sons, uh, t- to win, you need about 140 points or so, uh, before you can cross into that zone of going five and zero. Oh. um, of course, I mean, there's aberrations and you could have exceptions where you just win a whole bunch of close games, but that's a very, very big statistical anomaly that I don't, I don't foresee happening. Uh, yeah. The, the way the trends are going. It just looks like the average amount of points that we have right now has now crossed under 100 points now in July. We were still at about 100 points when we, I think, last talked about this at the very beginning of May. 
Uh, but that, that trend, all the trends we talked about before in terms of where the Army's headed has, um, have, has gone down. Um, now we can talk about a couple things that are changing. Uh, we've seen some upticks in some things getting used. Uh, one of which is Magnus. Um, Magnus is now, uh, it looks like gone from uh, most armies not having him to most armies actually running him now, uh, which is probably an answer to the fact that the knights have kind of waned a little bit. I don't know whether Chaos Knights are just going to change that or not, but uh, that I would probably attribute it to the fact that there isn't something out there that can guaranteed one shot kill Magnus. Um, you know, that, that is <clears throat> probably why we're seeing him back a little bit. There's a little bit of an uptick in Rhino usage, um, but nothing, nothing serious. Um, nothing really in the heavy support range. It's still a dumpster fire. Um, we are seeing Zangor Enlightened taken a lot more. Um, I saw a bunch of lists and actually a bunch of lists that were doing relatively good uh, that had uh, somewhere between 14 and, uh, you know, 20, 20 Zangor Enlightens in there. There were a few that had 27 Enlightened. Um, so there's some interesting things there. And then uh, Scarab Occult Terminators have definitely started to show up quite a bit more. Um, so they're, they're coming up. Um, and then other than that, we've, we've obviously, thanks to Matthew Ali, seen a huge uptick in Rubric Marines. Um, and you can almost see the uptick uh, from when the Dallas Open happened um, and he won the Dallas Open with Rubric Marines to um, just the explosion of lists that have started including, you know, 10, 20. We're seeing a bunch of Rubric Marines now out there. Cultists are waning, Zangors are kind of dropping off a little bit, but that's to be expected if you have a, an uptick in one of the three choices. The other, th those choices have to come or the points have to come from somewhere. So they're probably pulling less of the Cultists and less of the Zangors. A um, little bit more Terminator Sorcerer seems to be getting getting a lot of love, but aside from that, uh, everything else just seems to be kind of remaining in its own zone. Aramon is still pretty much an auto take. Demon Prince is all over the place. So, yeah, the big the big takeaways really are that uh, you know Magnus has made a big comeback, and uh, Rubric Marines are still owning the day right now with Thousand Suns. Do you think that's going to continue? I think. So with knights being as much as they're still very prevalent, I, I don't think that they're seeing as much play as they had in the last four months or so. And so if you look at the things that are seen in uptick, they're all multi-wound models that knights are, were really good at deleting. And so I think as the meta sort of shifts towards a more horde, style armies mm -hmm. um which as much as it's sort of slow i do see happening um i think you'll see that certain units like the scarab occults and magnus and the zingor enlightened will see more play yeah the scarab occult definitely intrigued me because they can put out just so many shots mm -hmm. and uh and actually even just mowing down if you play horde lists um you get ap3 swords on them and they i mean you put them into just even guardsmen or something like that. And they just absolutely mulch whatever they get into yeah. from a, and, from a, like a cheap chaff <clears throat> standpoint. Once you get into things that are a little bit stronger, you need more damage. That's where they get a little bit. Yeah. And the fact that they get 24 inch range all the time now for the four shots is 
pretty amazing. That's pretty dang amazing for sure. Yeah. So, well, on that point, um, that's just a quick run through on the stats. Uh, nothing too crazy. Next up, Mike, we have got a new treat. So this is the first time we're going to be doing this, but I thought it would be interesting to take some questions from the Thousand Suns community. This is exciting. I uh, are actually you, are you ready. I, I joined the Thousand Suns Discord just for this. First question. What do you think is the biggest trap when you start Thousand Suns? That is a complicated question. Um, I think the uh, biggest trap that people will fall into is finding the proper balance between all of your awesome HQs and the everything else. Because Thousand Suns HQs are fantastic. I mean, easily some of the best in the game, but they're really expensive. And as much as I would like to be able to win a game with just my cabal of exalted sorcerers and Magnus, that's not really doable. And um, so striking that sort of knife's edge balance between enough psychers to be able to deal with sort of hard threats and your troops and other sort of units is the, the hardest part, I think, about playing this army at the moment. A lot of... So you've got a lot of bad options, but then you have a few good options and it's kind of how do you mix the bad options with the good options? Kind of. Yeah. Well, I don't like to think bad options, but um, not necessarily uh, high premium jet fuel options. Have like, you seen uh, our heavy support list, sir? It is a uh, dumpster fire. I mean, it, it is not good uh, no. compared to most other armies. It's sort of like... Uh, Abaddon sort of like, hey guys, I heard you want heavy supports. Here, have some. It's like, but Abaddon, these are all used and say Black Legion on them. It's like, yeah, but at least you have some. It's like, thanks, buddy. Well, apparently the Thousand Sons can at least make their own Hellbrutes, right? Yes, they can at least shove a guy in the box and uh, make their own Hellbrutes. <laughs> yeah, you're about to be a sorcerer. Nope. Yep. Here you go. Oh. The uh, next question is, what do you think that my Thousand Suns will be pinks? Which I'm not sure exactly what you're trying to say there, unless you mean painting your Thousand Suns pink, which Thousand Suns embrace all different colors of paint. And so as long as you're playing Thousand Suns, it's okay. Bring your pink Thousand Suns. We will embrace you <laughs> the and sh- shove you in the box. Yeah. Yeah. Shove you in the Hellbrook box. Yeah. <laughs> um. What do you think is the, uh, why do you think they gave Magnus nipple horns? You actually, you missed a question though. It's a very important question. Yes. You ask on the discord. That, that's where you ask the question. Uh, yes. But um, the point of the Magnus nipple horns, well, you see Magnus hails from a different time. And so back whenever his concept art was first, you know, put onto Water colors or whatever it was they did nipple horns were the height of fashion so is big hair and so that's why in the new model you have the option of including the nipple horns or you cannot it's the uh the, the joy of the magnus model you can build them all sorts of way unlike other stinkier or more pretentious primarchs See, magnus is the primarch of choice true 
What they should have done, though, is include shades for Magnus as well. That would have been appropriate. So, um, also, the I guess if you want to know what the point of the nipple horns is, I like to think that they're an intimid- intimidation factor. You see, Russ once claimed that he had the biggest horn in all the land, and so Magnus thought, well, I'll just show him up. So he has two. <laughs> what do you think of my horns, Lehman? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh... What's your favorite color scheme, Mike? I love the classic Thousand Suns color scheme of like that like blue and gold. And like all of my Thousand Suns, except for one Hellbrood, are painted that. And every time I paint new Thousand Suns, that's what I do with them, except for that one bad idea I had about that uh, 30K version of Armand. He's cherry red because um, that was a paint scheme that they were suggesting for a while. Yeah, looks damn good though. Yeah, I have to. I have to agree with you. I, I'm going to be lame and go with the uh, the classic colors. I think they uh, they're just really, really good. The blue, the Thousand Suns blue, is just absolutely gorgeous. It's yeah. probably my favorite color in the whole the whole range of colors that they have. Although Sotek Sotek green gives it a good run, but I think Thousand Suns blue. See, is- my Thousand Suns are painted regal blue from back before they uh, changed the paints to funny names. Gotcha. So can you still get Regal Blue at all? No. No, you cannot. So you can't. I have one pot of Regal Blue that I add a couple of drops of uh, medium to every three months in order to make sure it stays nice and mostly liquid. Gotcha. Just just in case you decide to add some more. We have some more questions. We do. All right, David, this one's for you because I'm out of touch on this one. What are some of the best additions to Thousand Suns from the Chaos Knights Codex? And I have the perfect answer. Stay tuned to next week. Would we? Oh, that's a cop out. I'm ashamed to be on this podcast. <laughs> All right. Who I, sold is out, the... I sold out to our sponsors for next, for next week. Our sponsors. Yep. So. All right. Who is the sexiest Thousand Suns of Stardust and why is it? Cetesius? I don't know who that is. Yeah, I feel really dumb that I don't know who that is, but I'm going to go with... Um, the I guy. like the guy who turned got turned into a Mutalith Vortex Beast after his 999th <laughs> ritual. He I is clearly the, the... Yeah, that guy. He is the sexiest <laughs> thousand son alive. It's why he turned into a Mutalith Vortex Beast as opposed to a Chaos Spawn. He's just He was too much for this ugly, ugly world. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah that, that guy... That guy just envisioned, like, em- embraced the the Zinch theme, one hundred percent. Maybe a little bit too much. Jumped straight off that cliff. More Next. important question: Who uh, does Aramon have to clean and dust his rubrics? See, that's actually a trick question. All is dust, and so if you dust the dust, you still just have more dust. It's kind of a Suspicion problem. You don't. I don't think Armand bothers bothers with dusting his rubric. Why is painting rubrics to a high level so exhausting? Because the models are so beautiful. So uh, one thing you'll find if you've painted a bunch of different types of armies is the more fancier and more beautiful the model is modeled, the harder it is to paint. 
not because effectively because there's so many details you have to be very careful that your various colors don't overlap onto the layers that's supposed to be on and um that's why so if you want to you know ever just have a calm relaxing painting thing try painting just a regular space brain believe me it's a way different feeling than having to paint a thousand sun well so alizarium's the one who asked this question um I feel like they are probably the, the to, to your answer, the the best looking, some of the best looking models in the game once they're done. Good things to have have a price, and yep. you know, the price to have those nice things is a lot of time and a lot of effort to get there. But when you do, um, you know, it's pretty it's pretty dang rewarding. I mean, I think he's in the process of painting something like thirty or forty Rubric Marines or something mm -hmm. just like that. So, you know, hats off to you, man. So. Yep. All right. Dolan asks, is that Magnus's real hair or is it part of his headpiece? That's all real, baby. That is all real. So if you've ever put together Magnus, so I, I like to talk about how modular that kid is. You can choose not to put on his like crown thing. And he, so literally if you put, take Magnus without any of his armor or any of his like accessories, he looks like freaking Fabio. He is a beautiful, beautiful crimson man, and that hair is real. And why don't regular Thousand Suns Marines pre-rubric have skin like Magnus? Well, that's probably because as much as I love Magnus, he is a dirty, dirty mutant. And so he has crimson skin in one eye because his that's just how his strangeness manifests. Whereas as much as the other thousand sons all have, well, you know, that thing called the flesh change. So Magnus's flesh change is very nicely controlled to leave a mostly human, whereas they don't have the necessary control to do it. So they turned into horrible gibber beasts, which we will not be naming. That's a very good answer. I don't think I can add anything to that. Dimatrix <laughs> uh, asks, what are the best allies to include alongside Thousand Sons? That is a complicated question. I'm going to say Zinch Demons. Zinch so, Demons, hands down. Yeah, Zinch Demons probably are the nicest fit at the moment. They uh, synergize very well with what Thousand Sons brings to the table. You know, John Cook and I had a good discussion at the end of our game, and, and it was funny because he brought up the fact that he had been playing soup armies for a little while where he was, you know, trying to mix things together. And he just got to the point where he said, you know what, it felt like I was playing three different armies at one point. And I think he makes a really good point there that you can kind of get into that, you know, when you're, when you're trying to say, okay, what are these other things I could bring? It's really easy to fall into that. I guess it's a trap where you, you've got three independent armies that don't really mix and match with each other. Correct. Um, and I felt with my chaos list that I ran at uh, Alamo, uh, I felt like it was really good because everything was Zinch, everything synergized. Um, even though I had chaos space Marines and um, Zinch demons and rubric or thousand suns all on the board, all of their stuff in one way or another kind of worked with each other. So it was uh, uh, that made things I think a lot better. And I think if you kind of, start at just let me just run thousand suns and zinch demons that's a good place to just kind of get a feel for that so alizarium has a uh, serious question for us now okay. surprising from him he's kind of a jokester see he is asking 
do we think that they will change the character rule to be more similar to the way it works in the current Age of Sigmar rules? Or instead of a character not being able to be targeted at all, it's a simple minus one to hit so long as they're close to a friendly unit. Uh, no. Frankly, I don't think they will. So in Age of Sigmar, shooting armies are fairly rare uh, with a couple of rather, uh, well, let's say pointed exceptions. Um, and one thing that uh, to keep in mind is in the, the original version of Age of Sigmar, characters had no protection whatsoever. And so you, I remember there being a good number of games where by the end of turn one, there were no characters on the table because everyone's cannons had deleted them. Um, and so I think the minus one to hit is fine for Age of Sigmar. And I guess... I haven't looked at the new APOC rules, but even for APOC, I think that's still probably fine because the way that damage is in there is done. Um, however, I don't think it's going to become a thing in 40K proper, um, yeah. mostly because it would completely sort of change the way the game is played because at the moment you can bring characters and feel fairly secure the fact that they're not going to get deleted, whereas a simple minus one to hit most shooting armies laugh at that. I mean, yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's too much good shooting in the game that can just shrug off, you know, stuff like that. Even, even there's even assassins in the game that, I mean, they just always hit on twos anyways. So there's yeah. stuff, there's lots of mechanics like that. There's just lots of good shooting. Um, and in 2000 point games, um, just the, the weighted towards the weighting right now, the way the rules are towards shooting and the amount of um, good shooting options that are out there generally available. Um, that would that would make it very very difficult for characters to stay alive. I mean, if you were to think about Thousand Suns with a minus one to hit on their on their sorcerers, I'm I'm not sure I can even viably play Thousand Suns at that point. Just at the fact that they could pretty much table them off there. You have things like Guard and Relic Precadia, which we talked about. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they literally could just blow your characters off the table, and then you're you're pretty much done at that point. Yeah, there's nothing else you got. So yeah, especially with like uh, weapons that ignore line of sight. It's just yeah. not, I don't think they'll ever make that mistake. Now I do think he's, he's picking on some of the new APOC rules. And I think that's actually a good, uh, a good kind of segue there because there are things in the new APOC rules, like the fact that damage is resolved at the end of the phase, uh, yes. or the end, sorry, the end of the turn, the battle, the battle round that you're on, which mm-hmm. is I think possibly a peek into games workshop, thinking about how they can kind of soften the, um, the alpha strike yeah. yeah exactly and i think they've done a little bit of that in some of the game tweaking in the rounds and everything but um like with chapter approved and stuff like that but i think i think it's not there yet i think it's still i mean you're, you're still very much weighted to if you can if you can strike hard first um you're at a clear advantage for the rest of the game um just yes. you've eliminated their ability to do anything so mm-hmm. All right, so Hyperreal is asking about Contemptors, Leviathans, and Doradios, uh, and I feel pretty well um, equipped to answer this because I have run everything except for the Leviathans from a Chaos standpoint, but there's a reason I haven't run the Leviathans. Uh, the Leviathans, hands down, are the best-looking Dreadnought of all of them. I love the models. They look amazing, uh, but they absolutely have garbage stats uh, on the Chaos side. Um, you're dumping way too many points in them for way too little output from them. Uh, mm-hmm. And they are also extremely easy to destroy, uh, even with their five-up invuln. The Imperial version of it that has the four-up invuln is 
night and day better. So I think you're seeing Imperial armies take the Leviathans and Chaos armies tend to wait between the Contemptors and the Doridios. Um, I think the only reason people take the Doridios is, or Doritos, uh, is the fact that it's got the Greater Havoc Launcher, which allows you to ignore line of sight. But even then, <laughs> it's only a one damage weapon. Uh, so when you're going against things like Rubric Marines or Nurglings, uh, you actually are not going to get much done with that. It's really good if you've got like mortar teams or things hiding in, hiding in terrain, really good against mm-hmm. that stuff, but that's about it. Um, it's just extra, extra shots. You do get the heavy bolters, but meh, uh, you're, you're paying a considerable amount more when you look at the contemptors where at 138 points, you have two butcher cannons. Um, you yeah. can, sure. You can tack the havoc launcher on for, you know, six points if you want to, but, um, it really just you want the butcher cannons that are on that and they're really really dang good when they get into um, close combat because you got that four up inborn um i have been thinking about the idea of using them in assault but i can't really quite get there right now just the way the game is set up but yeah so got a lore question here how do the thousand sons go from reeling from the wolves at prospero to helping in the siege of terra well, I think we're going to find that out when they come out with the Siege of Terra book here soon. Yeah, though we actually we can uh, sort of go over sort of how they could assist with the Siege of Terra. Sure. So the one thing to keep in mind about the Heresy Era Thousand Sons is they're a very different legion than they are in the current era. Because the rubric hasn't happened yet, even though all of the, uh, I guess, pre-rubric Thousand Sons are not very strong psychers, they are still psychers. And so when combined with sorcery, that allows them to produce psychic effects that are much more potent than what the modern Thousand Sons can do because they lack the manpower to do it. Whereas a Exalted Sorcerer is a much more powerful psyker than like a Heresy Era, I guess, equivalent. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is there's only so much you can do by yourself. And so because they had this like, the uh, extra bodies, as it were, they can enact larger sorcerous rituals in order to have a very dramatic effect on the battlefield with summoning demons and warp storms and all sorts of other just unwholesome things. Yeah, I think the one thing I do look forward to is finding out a little bit more from a logistics standpoint how they get there. Because um, there's, there's still some timing stuff around... Uh, when does Crimson King happen uh, versus, you know, when do they, when do they finally, I think there's the missing pieces we haven't seen is how they actually get to the point where they just decide, you know what, we're going to go help and, you know, help Horus and, you know, go to, go to Terra. Now I know that towards Crimson King, they actually start to allude to some of that, but the actual mechanics of how that happens or the, the intricacies of it, I think you could possibly write a book about it. Um, and kind of have this, I guess, dialogue between Magnus and Horus or something to that extent, whether that happened or not, I don't know. But yeah. um, I do think there's there's probably more, the way I, I think it goes is there's more ulterior motives for the Thousand Sons and the Siege, um, where they're not necessarily interested in really like killing the Emperor. You know, I don't think they've ever really been about killing the Emperor. I don't think mm-hmm. they even blame the Emperor all that much. That's That's kind of the ironic thing in that, Thousand, the Thousand Sons, they kind of more or less, they see the faults in humanity and they're much more critical of it, um, which probably from the Space Marine side, uh, the, there's much more like, 
they shrug that kind of stuff off. Like they'll acknowledge it here and there, but a lot of them just kind of as a majority shrug it off where like the thousand sons as whole, will just look at it much more objectively um, and, and just kind of see the faults that they have and know that, Hey, you know, the Imperium was never going to survive or the Imperium, the emperor was never going to survive, or there was going to be, you know, this whole idea you know, that they could rule the galaxy or whatever it was, was, you know, just not going to, that, that was not going to work. I think Aramon in, in at least one of the books talks a little bit to that. Um, maybe it was Black Legion or something. But. Yeah. So Aramon, it, I guess pre-heresy was actually like a fairly optimistic individual. However, I, I think the uh, Prospero kind of broke him and a lot of his fellow legionnaires you know, of their uh, positive outlook. Yeah, for sure. And where I was going with that was um, they're probably seeking more like, you know, the, sh- the soul, star- uh, soul shard of Magnus that was mm-hmm. beneath the throne at that time, which I think we know becomes Janus, um, yeah. which is the, the Grey Knight guy. But in any case, I, th- I think they more look at it that way and it's more convenient to do, do stuff. And it's kind of a, a start to what the Chaos Space Marine Legions are to become, uh, which is much more like disbanded renegades rather yeah. than like a unified a unified army mm-hmm. um but it does give some credit to uh to abaddon and how he's uh i guess some of the some of the hints we're hearing is that you know horace really by the time they get to terra he's just absolutely you know consumed by the the gods and abaddon is the one having to actually do all the logistics and mm-hmm. much like run the campaign there at that point which is i think that's a cool setup cool setup to the fact that now he runs the black legion and actually has a chance. Like if everything's under his control, he can, he can possibly, you know, bring, bring justice to the, to the emperor. But you know, the where, the where from a story arc, if you look at it from just a writing standpoint, I think you're probably headed towards something where humanity has to be put into a dire position. Like they're not even close to that yet. They have to be basically put to the point where there's no hope they they think that all is lost and that kind of thing but then you know answers come heroes show up you know the prime some of the prime arcs that have been missing they come back that's your story arc that's you know that's that's how these kind of things usually play out so delion uh do you really need to rely uh or over rely on zangors to be competitive so if you'd asked this question six months ago, you'd have probably received a very different answer. However, uh, current trends say no. Uh, with the uh, changes to the meta and uh, generally just what make comprises a thousand sons list, uh, I think you're seeing that rubrics uh, can get the job done perhaps even better in certain cases, depending on what you're bringing. Uh, so if you don't want to be a goat herder, you don't have to be anymore. <laughs> I think maybe some more nuance to that is that rubric Marines will, will work very well if you're very good in the movement phase. Yeah. Um, and Zangors will help cover up some of your mistakes to that standpoint. It's a, it just throw lots of bodies at them. All right. So Grim Doc has got some questions here. So what, is your opinion of how if the emperor had a text-to-speech device depicts Magnus? Uh, so personally, I feel that the uh, Magnus shown in if the emperor had a text-to-speech device is actually fairly true as a in a as a comedic parody of the Magnus that existed in the Heresy books. Keeping in mind that the um, 
post-Heresy Magnus doesn't feature heavily in most novels, and so it's hard to get a proper judge of how he, I guess, where he's at as a character. Um, with effectively Magnus sort of having issues with the Emperor as his father and generally just having that issue if he always feels that what he's doing is right and he was not unwilling to uh, do some bad things in order to do the right thing, at least as he views it. Um, and so personally, I think that the they've done a great job of sort of giving a positive spin on the Magnus character. Uh, ben Joseph, or Benji Joseph, is it viable to add a Hellforge Dreadnought to a Monocodex Thousand Suns list? If I take one, should I be taking two? Or is it a takeaway that my army's core concept is all about? Does it take away from what my army's core concept is all about? Yeah. Um, She's I actually asking about a Leviathan Dreadnought. Um, yes, so I think we... I think we covered that one already. We did. Though I, I guess going into list writing, so if I were to take a Leviathan Dreadnought in the Thousand Suns list, I would take two. Uh, mostly so you have a certain amount of um, redundancy and just charge them up the table as fast as you can go. Uh, because otherwise they're going to die really badly to your enemy's anti-tank. Uh, so if you're not wanting to build a super like strong list, like you're just, I like Leviathan Dreadnoughts, I want to bring them. I think they can do good work, but um, you're going to run into some games where they might not be the best choice, uh, much Thank like you know uh, Hellbrutes or any number of other options. Yeah, so keep in mind that each time you lose one of them, too, you're losing a lot of points. Um, yes. I mean, when you look at the points, when you get some weapon loadouts on them, yeah, I mean, you're dang close to a knight at that point. And if you were to think about mm-hmm. if you had two knights in your list, I think that's what you're going to start to see is when the knight codex here really gets going. I think you're going to see with Thousand Suns, you're going to see a lot better options. You're going to be able to bring a couple bigger, stompier dudes than probably what you could get at mileage-wise out of just Magnus. The, 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 it is important to note that the question is mono codex. That's um, true. So That's true. The knights in the equation does change things, though. Yep. Next, from Papa Gilbs, what would be your dream conclusions to the storylines of the major Thousand Suns characters? Does Aramon finally find his library card? Can Magnus for one for once learn not to fuck up? Hey, I do not appreciate that last question, sir. Um, <laughs> so, right, so, frankly, um, I guess because of uh, how Aramon's story um, interacts with the Eldar story novels I've been reading, personally, I want Aramon to eventually find that library card and figure out how to fix his mistake. Because um, that's, that's what the quest is all about, is how to undo the rubric, which uh, he's finding more and more clues. I really hope that they finally just throw him a bone because he tries so hard. Uh, if I was looking at it from a thousand suns stamp or like a story arc, the way I would conclude this is I would say that Aramon goes to Kamara and he figures out a way to reverse the rubric. Uh, but in doing so, he realizes that it's going to cost his life. Uh, we've already seen that he's willing to do that. Um, I think what happens is he goes to do that 
and he ends up having to sacrifice himself more or less to to reverse it, which he does. Um, but in doing so, um, there's something that probably Zinch gets involved with in there, and it doesn't go quite perfectly right, and Aramon is essentially gone. In light of that, I think what also happens is with Magnus, um, he, I think he eventually does something to resolve the whole issue, the whole issue of the golden throne and having someone having to sit there and power, like the emperor having to sit there and power it. Magnus is probably the only other person that would be able to do that. Um, and I could see something happening where Magnus is willing to more or less replace the emperor to have the emperor like walk again, more or less, uh, or be the, you know, use Magnus's energy to, to like rebirth the emperor to some extent. Um, yeah. Or there's some salvation there for the thousand sons. Cause I think there's, I think what's deserving for them and how much they've suffered is some kind of salvation for them. Um, even the Rupert yeah. Marines who still, as they've kind of peaked at, they have a way to kind of remember where they were. Like they obviously have not, when the one dude, um, when they encountered your brain, uh, when the one dude gets brought back, he's obviously like nothing happened. He's yeah. just, you know, like, where are we? What, what's going on? Um, so if they're all in like the suspended, like state of suspended animation, you essentially have this whole legion of Astartes that could be saved uh, or they could be brought back. Which is actually interesting. Um, the uh, novels that the Thousand Sons have appeared, Magnus is obviously up to something. Um, he's claiming territory in real space and setting up some massive ritual. I think he's trying to sever his connections to the warp and Zinch in particular. And I'm hoping that they manage to pull something real cool out of that, especially with uh, Loyalist Thousand Sons showing up in the uh, effectively a section of the webway that the Thousand Sons is just sort of nabbed off the Eldar. <laughs> which, uh, again, read Ashes of Prospero. It's really cool. It may fi- feature filthy dogs, but it also has Thousand Sons in it, and that's always a plus. All right, so Netter uh, Mizuno asks, why did Zinch change their color from red to blue? I don't have a good answer there. Um, I, I mean, Zinch is all about changing things, but uh, what's your theory? My theory is that in the hierarchy of colors within Zinch, uh, you can see that there is a transition from pink horrors to blue horrors or pink horrors to heralds to lords of change and all of them are blue. Uh, you have screamers, you have flamers, they're mm-hmm. all, their base color is blue. But in a hierarchy of units in there, um, it seems to be as you get higher in the har- hierarchy in general, uh, you, have, um, you, you start to become more and more blue, um, just from like a progression standpoint that as you get to blue and purple or darker hues of the spectrum, that that's kind of more there's something like either like an attunement of enlightenment or something like that. And so in Zinch's mm-hmm. eyes, ter- taking them from red, a red hue to blue is more enlightening them. You know, ah, you guys have awakened. Here you go. You know, this is your better form, but that's, yeah. that's all I got. So. All right. Lord. What? Yeah. Zoltaron. Uh, what cleaning brand do you use for stripping your miniatures? Uh, so there are a couple of suggestions there. Um, 
personally, I use a product called Simple Green. Uh, I, in its concentrated form, you can buy it at any hardware store. Uh, Purple Power is effectively the same product, but purple. Um, which all these, of course, work fantastic for plastics and resin models. Um, actually, if you... Key, if I'm here, sorry, Mike, but I think the key you're talking about is you need the concentrate, right? Yes, you have to use the concentrated version. Not the stuff where you just buy like the spray or something like that and you put it in a cup and put Correct. it... Correct. You might start to get some progress, but it's not where it's not going to be anywhere near as fast with the yeah. concentrated stuff. Uh, the other thing you can use those for, though, is if you buy Forge World and uh, you, it comes with a... a um, a f- oily film on it. Uh, if you soak it in that, uh, it'll also clean up that film. Um, and then if you're using pewter minis for some God awful reason, uh, acetone would be the way to go. I will say that one of the other things I'd like to mention is that in cases where simple green hasn't done the work for me, I've actually found that using, um, a very high, uh, alcohol content, um, yeah. isopropyl works really, really good. Uh, or like, um, uh, rubbing alcohol, basically, uh, which you can get at like, you know, a drug store or, you know, some grocery stores. But I found that the drug stores have the higher concentrated version of it. Some of them are like at the grocery stores, you only get about 70% alcohol versus Correct. at the store, you get like 91%. And the 91% stuff really does work. Um, and it's so good. I actually use that to clean my brushes as well. Yes. Um, I can actually the paint that gets up inside the, um, I, I guess it's called the fairing or right at the point where the, the, I, I'm probably wrong on that term, but the point where the brush mounts to the, to the actual uh, shaft of the paintbrush, um, you can get alcohol up in there by just kind of soaking them for a few minutes, like laying down or, or, uh, putting the brush in, in the alcohol and just kind of working the bristles around, you can start to see the paint just kind of start working itself off the bristles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you have your GW brushes and they kind of, you know, they fray out, you know, over time, um, you know, that's one of the things you can do to kind of renew them is, you know, give them a little alcohol bath and, and work them around in that. Yeah. Uh, the one, I guess a disclaimer there, um, rubbing alcohol, the nine, like the really high concentrated version, uh, be careful to, about how long you leave your models in that because uh, with a long enough soak can damage them. Now I've found that I've been able to leave mine in that alcohol for um, the course of a day or, you know, a good chunk of the day. Um, I would not leave it in it overnight, Correct. but I have found that if I put it in there um, over most of the day, um, it does not melt the plastic. You will feel you will notice that the, the plastic does feel a little bit soft. So you mm-hmm. have to be careful about that. So like if your nails or something start to ding it, you might put on, you might easily put a mark or something like that into the plastic if you don't mm-hmm. want it there. So just, you know, maybe wear rubber gloves or something like that to just be kind of, you know, careful about what, what hits the miniature. Um, but that generally goes away once you've put them out to dry, everything hardens back up. Correct. So you just got to be careful about that. It's a good point, Mike. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the creature caster models uh, as demons of Zinch? I've seen demons of Zinch plenty of times. Yeah, they're beautiful models. Um, They're a little uh, larger than a normal demon prince, which, I mean, honestly, that if you're at a highly competitive environment could negatively impact you because it's hard to hide the model, but it is still a character, so it shouldn't hurt you that much. Um, So... Personally, I, I love them uh, as 
demon prince models it also uh i guess allows people to bring uh more interesting models just the same old demon prince over and over again uh you see lots of like other alternatives instead of demon princes as a result uh, the one thing to keep be careful, though, is you cannot take those models into any Games Workshop store yeah. or a Games Workshop-sponsored event because those require that you have all Games Workshop product. Well, another good example of that is if you're going to be on a top table or streamed at one of those events, they will not allow you in those cases. This could be even like a frontline gaming event or something like that. Correct. Streaming it and GW's involved with it. Um, they will not allow you to have non-GW stuff, uh, even even custom bases and things like that. They won't allow you to have that. And they'll give you the option to go get other models or replace them or borrow something, but yeah. kind of a kind of a double-edged sword there. You can yeah. get something really good looking, but you can also kind of have limits to when you can use it. So do you so Dillion again is asking, do you think Magnus will turn good after getting the shard of his kindness? So is that shard, I'm, I may be a little hazy on my lore, but is that shard the Janus shard? I believe that is the shard he's referring to. I guess we're going to have to wait and see if they have an encounter there. Would he, if, so let's hypothetically imagine that he does get the shard. What do you think? Does he, so, to good? Personally, I don't think he's going to turn to good per se. Um, however, I do think that uh, it would bring him back much closer to how he was like at the moment of Prospero sort of as being bombardment, bombarded. He doesn't want to turn on the Emperor. And so I think he'll go back to wanting sort of what's best for the galaxy as opposed to what's just, what's just best for him and his sons. Um, because currently uh, I think that uh, he's very selfish as a character and uh, getting his kindness back, I think would uh, temper that considerably. I think another way you could look at it is maybe look at like Lehman Russ and the shit they've been through. And uh, you know, if, if he had the shard, would he be able to work stuff out with Lehman? Um, And I think, I think, yes, I think given everything that's transpired and everything that Lehman feels now and everything he's gone through, I think the two of them, if, if he gets that shard, I think they could potentially work some stuff out. It might be kind of like a, an Ashes of Prospero. I, I think Ashes of Prospero and even Wrath of Magnus did show us that as much as there is a bunch of bad blood there, the neither Legion really wants that fight. It's like, no. we've, they, we've done this so many times. It's like, can we just stop? Right, and there are certain personalities involved that just won't let it stop. Yeah, there's a certain couple adults that need to sit down and work their shit out, and that is Magnus. And yeah, and I I have a feeling that even if they were to do that, and they would to eventually be on the cusp of doing something like that, I feel like someone else would get involved to make sure it didn't happen. Like the changeling, for instance. (laughs) Oh, maybe not even the changeling. Maybe actually Zinch himself. Yeah sits down and is like, look, this is what's best for everybody. I don't know. Maybe Magnus is put in a position where he, do- he, he doesn't feel like he has a choice. Yeah. Uh, or maybe, maybe he does figure out that he has a choice. I don't know. Uh, but Cable, uh, who has been uh, one of our longer running members, um, do you think uh, Aramon is a good guy, at least in his own mind, and would the Thousand Sons ever join Gilliman's Empire? So 
I think Araman is probably one of the best people in all of 40K. Um, he is not on the good, he has not made good decisions. Um, he has not had things work out and he's not had very good luck either. But the fact that he's someone who's willing to sacrifice his life for all of his brothers uh, to reverse his mistake shows that he has enough humility to realize that, you know, he, he can do the right thing and he can do, he can go to that extent to do what needs to be done to fix, to fix what he screwed up. And I think that that makes him a pretty damn good person. There's very little humility in 40 K. So. so the other half of that, I guess, thing is, so in his own mind, I think Araman thinks he's a fantastic person uh, for m- many of the reasons that uh, David just went over. However, I do believe at one point uh, some black library author sat down and was like, yeah, Araman is probably the most evil person in 40K uh, because of the lengths he's willing to go to to effectively fix his mistake. Short of betraying the Thousand Sons again, uh, I don't think there's anything he wouldn't do in order to fix it, which can lead to a lot of bad things. That That's sort of the, the great tragedy of 40K is good people do awful things because they believe it's the right thing to do. Yes. Which is part of what makes the setting so compelling. Even the best of intentions don't really matter if you don't do the right thing, yep. right? So. Yep. But as to your second question, I don't believe the Thousand Sons would ever join Gilliman's Empire. No, I don't either. They're, uh, the fact that you already have Imperial Space Marines that are really iffy on that to begin with, um, that that should tell you that the Thousand Sons are probably further down that that line to or further down the waiting line to get into that empire. So yeah. Also coming from cable, will Magnus ever be whole again? Uh, we did kind of touch a little bit on him getting his shards back. Do I think he's going to be whole again? No, I think he's going to just stay perpetually um, missing who he used to be. He will never be, I think a hundred percent of who he used to be. Yeah. Uh, I think they'll prevent that, I guess, plot line reaching a, decisive finish for so many of the same reasons that uh, well time more or less stopped for 40k for the better part of 30 years is you get to a point and if you effectively if you resolve the plot then it would actually i guess rob somewhat from the story so we have an interesting question for netter mizuno which came first chicken or the egg which, scientifically speaking, the egg came first. I got nothing. Yep. So I, I'm gonna. I, I just tried to divide by zero, so I got nothing. All right. Dusty Leo though has a, has a question, maybe a little bit back on topic here. Uh, if Lehman Russ did come back and defected due to current Imperium conditions, I think we could see Thousand Thousand Sons joining Gurley. I. Not quite sure. Gilliman. <laughs> Gilliman. So effectively, the idea about his question is, if the Th- Lehman Russ came back as a traitor Primarch, would the Thousand Sons then join Gilliman just to spite him? As much as that'd be really funny, I don't see it happening. Maybe wow. like temporary team-ups. It's like, okay, the crazy wolf is back. We got to put him down. And like Magnus and Gilliman, like bro fist, and they go and do epic battle with this horrible like land raider sized space wolf monster thing and then at the end of this like okay i have to betray you now it's like i know but 
maybe next time. It's like, yeah, we should do this again. And then they fight, and then there's this whole big thing. I, I don't see a permanent team up there. Well, there's definitely an aspect there where you can you can see a, a plausibility to um, Lehman Russ not agreeing with Gilliman uh, and deciding that they were going to do their own thing but still remain, I guess, loyal to the Imperium, um, which I guess could be, you know, if you were looking for a spark to, to start a civil war amongst the Imperium, that, that could do it right there. Yeah, which Gilliman has not done right by the Space Wolves at all. Um, it's actually one of the funnier things about current events in 40K. But if there was an army that would, or a, or a chapter that would rebel or stick to the old ways, it would be them. Or the Dark Angels. Or the Dark Angels. They have that was a... right where I was going where I could see him and Lionel Johnson meeting up and just kind of deciding... I don't know what Gilliman's doing, but I'm not doing that. All right. Another fantastic question from Nedder Mizuno. What are thoughts? Really? <laughs> All right. So I hope you um, got your lounge chair back. So sit, pull up next to the fire with your bottle of scots because we need to go into some deep philosophy about what thoughts really are. Um, it'll be on yesterday's podcast i'm sure do we'll i need to start eventually. playing elevator music now while we while we let you go off on your uh, your rant here <laughs> yeah I, I don't think i'm gonna remember it's on yesterday's podcast we actually already recorded it um and so it, it's fine well thankfully cable has jumped back in here um with our last question to get to the really important question here mike what is your favorite fast food tier list uh, or what actually is your tier of fast food restaurants and does it counter or does anything counter Arby's? And I suspect Cable is not from the South. I don't think he's from the South. Clearly he has never been to the fine established called Whataburger. Ooh. Whataburger is the king of fast food. You will accept no substitutes here in Texas. In fact, I'm going to go have Whataburger right now. It'd be great. That's pretty uh, passionate right there. And I have to agree with Mike Whataburger's at the top. And uh, I'm going to go with Chick-fil-A up there as well. Um, In-N-Out definitely deserves to be up there. But Arby's is okay. But I'm going with Whataburger, Chick-fil-A, and then everybody else. In-N-Out I'll throw up there too. But right. I will say there's a great establishment in Austin called P. Terry's. Um, but Whataburger is number one. So I'm not it is. creating any confusion there. So. All right, and the last question uh, entered in at the very last moment. Yes. Uh, Nedder Mizuno. Uh, yes, we can link you the podcast. It here it is. It's going to be. Here it is. Here's right the link. Here. Right here. I got it right here. On, on Reddit. It's, it's great. You're going to love it. Yep. Just click right here, man. We got it. It's right here. Yep. Okay. In Saturn News, uh, earlier this week, um, the 40K community lost a, a pretty special person, and that was uh, Jeff Robinson. And he was a pretty well-known um, vocal figure on 40K. You know, you know, one of the things I did, not to put us into too somber a, a mood here, you know, just it got me thinking a little bit in that when you're, when you're at these tournaments and you're playing with folks, you know, you just try and remember that it's a game. We're having fun. You know, these are, these are, you're basically creating memories at these things. And I think that really helped at Warzone Houston, for me, that was one of the things that I appreciated that I did do, that like my game with John Cook, 
he's somebody who's been playing 40K for I don't know how many years, but it's been a long, long time. To get a chance to play him at the tournament at a group of like 80 people, you know, it's a pretty cool matchup to have him running uh, Space Wolves and I'm running Thousand Suns. You know, just to try and take that in and appreciate it and remember it and be like, you know what? I remember that one time I played this guy and it was really, really fun. You never know what's going to happen. You never know, you know, who's going to be here, who isn't. And just to kind of appreciate those memories that you got and, and make them when you can. So yeah. with that, guys, as usual, Magnus did nothing wrong. Yeah.